Good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Well Said. Our guest today is Ken Pope. Ken is the Director of Academic Programs at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. He has a 34-year career in the U.S. Army where he was a Special Operations and Russian Foreign Area Officer, or FAO, FAO, assigned to Europe, Middle East, and Central America as well, and had over 12 years of operational field work in an army, as an Army FAO, sorry, with a focus on Russia and the Caucasus. Eastern Europe and security issues with a variety of assignments in Russia, Ukraine, Estonia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Kosovo. Now I bring up all your travels and your living assignment background because I feel it's particularly relevant to today's topic. We have a tendency to remember terrible times in human history while also forgetting why they were so terrible. When we remember or when we speak about the evils of communism, it's not often that we'll delve into the many examples of what it was like to live under a communist regime. The fact that no one could congregate, for example, um, in basic social settings without being labeled as a conspirator. Um, I think, you know, moments like that, you're kind of like, wow, how could that actually overlay with today's society? And you start to think about it a little bit more. So I think these examples are really vital to, um, you know, the argument against communism in today's society. Uh, I was looking through, you know, victims, victims of Communism Memorial Foundation's uh, website, and I saw some quotes by like Sir Roger Scruton. And one of the ones that stood out the most uh, is when he talked about it, how it became apparent that the real evil of communism, apart from the cruel treatment of individuals, lay in the systematic destruction of civil society. And I think we can look around today and see a disconcerting lack of civil society, where attempts to debate, gather and protest, or grow, go against the mainstream way of thinking is met with hostility, violence, and censorship. The surveillance state and policies encouraging neighbors to inform on one another that were popular in communist and totalitarian regimes didn't completely go away, in my opinion. They've just kind of migrated west, it seems. So I would like to start by asking you, Ken, why does it seem so common that societies go down these paths? Is it something that is drawn out by complacency, like liberty some, you know, is something that we have to always strive for? So when we come, become a complacent society, do we just kind of fall back into these bad habits? You know, why, do, why do societies consistently find themselves in these situations? Okay, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's really a privilege to speak with you and, and speak with your audience as well. This is such a such a fascinating topic. I, I think what happens is it's 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 a slow process, right? You, it starts at the incremental level where a group that's you know more let's say Marxist in, in, in nature or communistic in nature or has those leanings or beliefs, they start by tossing out some different ways of describing things. Talk about the language. Language becomes confused. And you know, typically a lot of folks don't initially see it as dangerous or worrisome until it, it gets farther down the road where you're already involved in it before you know what's happened. So I think that's how it, I think it is complacency. I think that we're all busy leading our lives. And but you have to understand too that some of these groups have a have an agenda, obviously. They they want to get things to turn the way, let's say if, if it's a Marxist group or what have you, that are more interested in a controlling type environment. They want their language to be the one accepted and anybody who doesn't agree with either their policies, their doctrine, their ideology, they become an enemy, they become a target. And it's, it's a much, much easier to, to start condemning them because they're, they are the enemy at that point. Right, yeah. Um, so let's dive in a little bit more um, with the real experiences of what you kind of saw on the ground. Um, whether it be East Germany or other areas. Um, I'm just curious, like specifically the Soviet regime, but feel free to talk about any other areas as well. I know you were in South America and they always had issues as well with, with communism and some of their regimes. Yeah. 
Let's let's start with like a, one of my favorite cases because the first one I experienced live and in person was was East Germany. So I you know went to you know went to university and even back in the eighties when I went through it's you know you still had folks who who talked about the Soviet Union and communism as it's it's not that bad they're just not doing as well as they could. There's a lot of good aspects to this to this system and the society. So you get that my undergrad degree was in sociology of the Soviet Union. So I'm always kind of fascinated with this topic. And then was also in ROTC, I joined the military. My first tour was over on the East-West German border. I arrived there in 86. And what most people don't realize is they, a lot of people tend to think that the term the Iron Curtain was just a metaphor, but in reality, it was a, a physical barrier. And the first thing is this brand new lieutenant goes over to Europe and you see this fence and you're thinking all these, my college professors were telling me, you know, what a great system this is. It's just not you know, quite perfected yet. If it's so great, why are they keeping, you know, roughly three, 300 million people behind the fence? What does it really have to offer? You know, why is it this, why is this great system, you know, a fence designed not to keep me out from coming over? There's nothing I really want there, but to keep the people who, who maybe desire something else, something a little, little unique in that part of the world called freedom to try to get out and escape. And that was how that went for, for the, you know, the duration of the Cold War, people trying to get out of that country, out of that system, because it was so terrible. It was all encompassing. It was everything. It, it took over every aspect of their lives from what they, you know, it permeated everything. You think about the things that we do today. It was at sports events. It, it was in the schools. It was in civil society. The only groups you could really have had to be communist hmm. or influenced by the communists, trying to get a new group approved, say like a, you want to try something like Boy Scouts? Well, that was completely forbidden. You couldn't have that. You could be in the communist youth group. And then if it was the way you thought, too, you had to parrot the party line. Talk about the council culture we have today. Back then, it was a little more a little more of a serious event, right? So if you didn't spout the party line then or say the slogans that everybody said or post the uh, put the posters up in your shop if you were a little small business owner working in a government facility or what have you, that you know sung the praises of the Communist Party, then there was something wrong with you. Okay, you weren't part of the system, and as such, you were you were vulnerable now, right? So right. you didn't believe this, but you felt compelled. You had to say it. You had to talk about and sing the virtues of that system. And if you didn't, there was plenty of people who were willing to to report on you. So the East German system, I, I wrote down a couple of figures for us so we could talk yeah. about because it's just so amazing. So if you think about East Germany at the time when the when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, a country of 16 million people, roughly, maybe a little bit less, they had one full-time security or intelligence officer, secret police officer for every 180 citizens in the country. Think about that. Wow. Um, full-time security officers in that country was 91,000. And they had a series of informers of 173,000. If you compare wow. that to what, what does that look like? We, we're a nation of 330 million people, right? Right. And we have a Marine Corps of roughly 180,000 people. So that's that's the scale of what their system was for such a very small group of a population. Yeah, I would, yeah, and I would love to see like those numbers compared to other institutions, like compared to educators or medical personnel, right. just yeah. because you know it, it, it's very, very offset on the security side. That is the primary goal is to protect the power of the government at that point. And that's, that's exactly, that's a great point. That's a good segue too, is so the, the communist systems were, you know, they stayed in power by virtue of the security state. They had all control of, over, you know, lethal force, military power 
and what have you. Their system, unlike the Western systems of the US, the US security systems, uh, say the military or our intelligence services, you know, by law, they, they can't focus internally on the American people, right? Mm -hmm. They are dedicated to protecting the people and the, and the sanctity of the nation. That's not true in the communist states. The communist state, the intelligence service, security service, their sole role is protecting the party and keeping the, the rulers and the regime in, in power. That's the difference. Right, no, absolutely. And so let's talk about that a little bit more of like, why is this power preservation so important? Um, because the government essentially it treated everything as if this is a zero sum game. If, if the people have any power, then the, that's the power that the government doesn't have, right? So it's just kind of, it was looked at as the trade-off. And so why, why was it so important or in totalitarian regimes in general, why is that the ultimate goal? Because it does hark back a little bit to kind of what I'm seeing around here where it's like this constant strive in, in our politics for, for to, to get your party to be the one with the most power. And that's kind of like the drive behind everything. And, and where, what path does that lead us down when that's our only goal? Right. So in these totalitarian or communist regimes, so the, you know, the ultimate goal of that system is to, is to remain in power. Mm -hmm. They have an ideology that's, that's all encompassing, right? It takes, it looks at everything, the, the social, the political, the philosophical, what you believe internal to yourself. And it's perfect. In their, in their eyes, it's an emergence of this perfect justice system, perfect political order. So if there's anybody who disagrees with that, there must be something wrong with them. But the problem is, is once they're in charge, the only way they can really maintain power and control is through the use of two major tools and two broad categories. And the tools are violence and, or the threat of violence and information control, right? So they, they, they establish this system of control and they're not gonna give it up. And once everything starts falling apart because these guys really don't know how to run a, a government or make this system called communism, this economic model, you know, of, of communism and socialism really worked for everybody. It's supposed to make everybody bring everybody up and make everybody, you know, right. have a lot of resources and everybody's is enjoying wealth. But instead, what it does is nobody owns anything or has anything and everybody becomes equally poor and, mm -hmm. and needing things. You, you think about all the lines you see in, in the, of the videos of the communist period in, in, in the Soviet Union or Eastern Europe or what have you, there's always a line waiting for something you know, because they, the system simply can't do it. So they have to use these tools now to keep the people in check because they want away from the system, but they can't because the monopoly of power is at the government level. And throughout history, the communist regimes have, have shown a very, very keen willingness to use it to stay in power, regardless of the human cost. Yeah, and I'm seeing a lot today, especially with the younger generations, um, talking about communism as if it's, we just haven't tried the right version of communism in human society yet. And that would, there's still, there's still a path for communism that, as you mentioned, will have like these e economic benefits will raise everyone up to, you know, equal levels of wealth, but that we could actually avoid the evil side of communism somehow. What are your thoughts on that? Because I mean, I hear it all the time. And to me, it just like, that's obviously something that I would never be on board with because it's not just an economic question, right? At the end of the day, right. there's more to it. Yeah, it's an all-encompassing question. So let's let's take that apart a little bit. So, in, in my view, it's it's ignorance of history, and and a true understanding of history. So if you look at where this thing started, so 1917, you have the Soviets try it, and it becomes an abysmal failure. The, the country implodes. You have all the Eastern European nations after World War II. They are they are forced to take it on, 
and none of it really works. You still have these systems that it just, you know, it's just deprivation, repression. It goes to Asia. You got China, you got North Korea, you got, you know, Cambodia, Laos, all those countries, you know, Vietnam, they experimented with it. And, and it never really worked. So my, I guess my, I would always go back to the students or the people who say that is, well, tell me where it, where it worked. And if, it, if it's not working well, what would you change to do this? Because the violence really starts as immediately. Because Marx said, you know, in his, in his manifesto, that the way we're going to achieve this is through revolution and violence. And that's typically been the norm, you know, of how these things take over. There's always some big upheaval. There's a lot of bloodshed. You know, Lenin, everybody seems to think he was the, the good communist because I think most people don't realize he killed 7 million people during the Civil right. War. Yeah, huge number. Stalin killed, you know, millions more. And then the, the champion murderer was, was, of course, Mao, who, you know, the different programs he tried to do and forced on his people, the Great Leap Forward, anywhere between 30 and 45 million people dead. Mm-hmm. The Cultural Revolution, where he spent, you know, a few years there killing off anywhere from one to three million of his political enemies or foes or, or people who might threaten his regime. So these, these things take hold, but there's, there's never any of this stuff where everybody's living together, everybody's enjoying the fruits of the communist, you know, paradise, so to speak. It, it always goes, what, what you always get, you definitely get the violence, mm-hmm. but you never really get any of the other great benefits. It's this theory supposed to, to bring along. Yeah, and the violence isn't just out of resistance, because I think a lot of people misinterpret where the violence in these regimes came from, and that they were just trying to tamp down on resistance and threat to their power. But in addition to that, in order for it to work, like you said, it's part of the philosophy is that this has to be born out of bloodshed, has to be born out of violence. It's something that has to be taken from people, not something that is just kind of, you know, when we think of like liberty and the founding of the United States, we had to take something back for for us. But this is something else where you would actually have to take something from people that they own, tear it away from them in order to provide it to the rest of the society. So this is, I think there is no way that this could be born peacefully. Right. Well, and I think the, the other thing, too, is they and you kind of hit on it there is taking things away. So they, they take literally everything mm-hmm. they take as, you know, as, as part of Marx's theory, where it becomes the ideology with between, you know, Marx and Lenin and, and the groups is they they have this piece where the abolition of private property. Right. So your first piece of property that you really own is your is your own body is yourself. Right. Right. They didn't view it that way. They viewed they viewed people as simply material in, in this motion of changing history. And what you would get is if that's what, how people are viewed, you just become a part of the machine, you know, the, of the communist machine or the regime trying to, you know, do whatever they want to do. Right. So as, a, as just a repair part, you, you really have no, you have no rights. There's no, there's no individual rights. There's no civil rights. There's no God-given rights or natural rights as we espouse in our, our founding documents. So you are simply a piece that can be used and abused. And when you break or you die, you're gotten rid of. Or if you become faulty, you're going to be replaced and either replaced and sent to a gulag in the Soviet system or executed, you know, or, or same thing in China. You know, if you become, if you're starting to squeak as a faulty part, then you're going to be, you're going to be removed and you're going to be put in a concentration camp or some other place where, or a right. prison. And, and you're not going to enjoy the modicum of, you know, a little bit of freedom you may have had in these, in these terrible societies. Yeah, let's talk about, you bring up China. I want to talk about how, what we're seeing with contemporary forms of communism that we have in the CCP, for example, in China, versus what we saw with the USSR and Mao, 
what are some of the major differences? Because I think another reason why there's a misinterpretation and misunderstanding of, you know, communist societies and that there could be some positive version of it is because of what we're seeing right now in China, where it actually looks like they are um, raising their society up pretty quickly compared to most in history with regards to like industrialization and everything. So I think, you know, that that positive gain is starting to cloud what our understanding of communism is. So I'd be curious what, the con what kind of contemporary communism versus kind of historical examples. Yeah, okay, so so let's take the, you know, communism in the Soviet Union and when Mao started coming in, he started in the, in the 1920s with the, with the communists trying to fight to take over, got a great civil war, eventually he came in to be the, you know, the ruler in, in 48. So, you know, in, in Mao's view, Stalin wasn't communist enough. So he he thought he was the was the guy. Think about how what a butcher Stalin really turned out to be. Right. Um, so we, I think, during the fifties, the geopolitical thing, the sixties, uh, the seventies, especially where, you know, we, you got the Soviet Union and you got communist China, and you know, I think the U.S. we decided to look at these organizations or these these countries a little bit differently. And I think toward you know the 70s and then up through the 80s and 90s, we started thinking, well, maybe we can turn China to our way of thinking if we invite them into all these economic groups, you know, right. G7, G8, or you know, just you know, WTO, letting them, letting them in the club, so to speak, and thinking that if we let them in the club, they'll see the great fruits of the of the economic society that we have in our country, and they'll want to become like us. That really didn't play out too well. So what they did is they took all the technology, they, they, they stole stuff. It's like the, the theft of our intellectual property rights. There's oh, yeah. the way they crush civil rights and the like. So instead of becoming like us, they've basically taken from us, you know, pretty much, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, if not trillions of dollars of intellectual property, made their military very ascendant now, where it's a very powerful organization becoming, you know, a near peer competitor with the U.S., so this idea of, you know, expecting communism to kind of go away. Mm -hmm. So now they're at a point where they have, you know, the resources economically, uh, the technology for military use, cyber. I mean, they are a police state with enabled by significant techno technological advancements that makes the security state pretty frightening. I can imagine that if, you know, Stalin and Lenin would have only dare dream of the amount of control that they have in China these days with the amount of information control they have over their society and, and the heavy hand they use. So it didn't work out. This great experiment of trying to bring China around to our way of thinking. So they are a somewhat wealthy country because they've stolen so much of it. Mm -hmm. and they, they're taking the South China Sea. They're taking that for, away from countries that border that area. Um, they take our stuff. They, they, the Belt and Road Initiative, where they're out basically using usury tactics against all these developing countries to, to get what they want around the world. It's all about taking control, both to be an economic superpower and a military superpower. Yeah, and I wanna talk a little bit more about the tactics of how um, these types of regimes gain their power. One of the ones that we're seeing kind of seep into society today, which is this emphasis on changing and controlling language um, and words and then tying words to action as if it's like, whatever you say is just as bad as if you like physically did something, you know, because, and it's just treating it that same way just because that's how it's seen as, as the, the controlling state. 
that just an idea or voicing um, the wrong words would actually, of dissent, you know, would actually put you in the same situation as someone who like actually went and like committed violence against someone. So I'm kind of curious. So on, you know, some of the examples are compelled speech. Um, and obviously, like I said, words are violence. So what is this emphasis on language? Why is this so important um, to regimes that want to gain this leverage and power over society? Right. So remember, we talked about those two tools, those two buckets of tools we have. So you got the violence aspect yeah. of it. So once you've used violence and really, you know, push people into submission in those, in, especially in the Soviet era going up through in China when they're first taking over, then they really control the information. So the only information that people get is what what they received. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's part of the, the tool set. Then what happens is, like we talked about a little bit earlier, is that you're you're now the system has the communists, the totalitarians have total control over all information and they're going to compel compliance. So again, you got to start talking the party line. And if you raise your voice because you don't agree with the system, you know, dissent, the dissidents that we had in the Soviet era and Eastern Europe as well, like Havel and, and the other Sultanitsyn and, and, and some other examples that we have, you know, what happened to these people? They're arrested, you know, mm -hmm. it got farther away from the, the Stalin area. They weren't executed right away or anything like that, but they were, they were definitely put in gulags or put in prisons. They were under house arrest. They lost their jobs. If you were an author or a writer, you weren't allowed to publish. Mm -hmm. So they controlled all the information and it, it, your information that you gave or spit out had to be, had to be approved by the censors, by the communists. I think what we have now is we have the similar thing without the violence, right? So we have people now that whether you agree with it or not, people are self-censoring. They're afraid to say things because they're afraid they'll be canceled or doxxed or, you know, they won't, they won't be able to keep their job. People have been fired by what they said. You know, back mm -hmm. in an earlier era, that would have been called free speech. You might have disagreed with it violently, but you didn't go out to seek, you know, their, their ruin, which is what we, we're seeing a lot today. Yeah, and also like examples of compelling certain like language that, you know, just this use of words to describe things. I mean, actually, a really good example is I've brought this up before many times, just a Colorado State University just put, for example, a um, like a, a posters all over their campus saying if you've recently been affected by a free speech event, um, here are some or, you know, if you've been affected or someone that you know has been affected by a free speech event, uh, here are a list of resources and it lists, you know, equal opportunity offices, DEI offices, Dean of Students, etc. Um, but they're not even calling it hate speech anymore. They're calling it free speech and they're trying to put this negative spin on free speech as if to, in our minds, convince us over time, the more you hear it, you know, it's all of a sudden free speech is no longer something that people want. I think that's what the goal is. And so kind of curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think it's really, you know, you, you've seen some you know, examples, even in the media, some recent ones. Just, let's take this Joe, Joe Rogan thing. I mean, I'm, I'll be honest with you up front. I, I don't watch his podcast. I don't know a ton about it other than, you know, he said some things about vaccination, his treatment regime and all that. And it created a firestorm where people, the funny thing was the people of the 60s who were considered the rebels, the rebellious generation, all about free speech, you know, wanted free speech, you know, the Neil Youngs, Joni, you know, Joni Mitchell, etc. You know, you can mm -hmm. the news story. We're all about that. And now it's completely flipped on its head. Same thing, Howard Stern. The, I mean, the guy, talking about a guy who pushed all boundaries of free speech to the, I mean, right. literally to the outer limits is now, you know, calling for all these people who don't have his particular view of a vaccination status or vaccines or treatment to be to be canceled. You know, you know who would have thought? Listen, that guy, 
you know, many, many years ago that you would ever hear him say something like that. Oh, as a kid, I wasn't even allowed to listen to him because my mom just was so against some of the stuff he talked about. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I think he even was just quoted recently saying something like, I am all for free speech. I'm like the front runner advocate for free speech, except in this situation. I'm like, well, you're either for free speech or you're not. There can't really be exceptions to that because once you start to create exceptions, you've opened that door where now all of a sudden you know, you can kind of put anything on that list that you, you think is necessary based on your own subjective right. views. Right. right. I mean, just in this compelling speech or making people do things that, you know, you don't necessarily want to do. I remember, I remember watching, uh, I mean, like we talked about earlier, how the propaganda went into all aspects of society. There was not a single place you could go in that world in the Soviet era in, in Europe or whatever that you could avoid the, the posters, the propaganda. And you, if you think about even some of the things that we went through uh, with the kneeling protest in the NFL, where players were, you know, they probably didn't want to do that. You know, there's one example where a guy that played, I think it was for the Pittsburgh Steelers, who was an army ranger, served in Afghanistan, but refused to, to do the kneeling during mm-hmm. the national anthem, because that to him was this a bridge he couldn't cross, you know, as a soldier. Yeah. And, but, you know, he received, think about the pressure and from his teammates and others saying he was wrong and all this. I mean, it was just, it's, it's that level of censorship or trying to compel a speech that is, is very reminiscent of what these, these regimes did, you know, all throughout the Cold War and what's still going on in China. We just haven't gotten to that level yet. Hopefully we don't, because that would pretty much be the end of what we call, you know, our freedoms. If you can't say what you, what you really believe, you know, when you feel like you have to self-censor or, or parrot the party line, that's not a lot different than what we, you know, we fought against throughout the entire Cold War. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point that, you know, we're not to that level yet where violence is being used, you know, against, against you or that the state is not enacting violence on you for some of these things, you know, but you see examples of it getting really close to that line, especially when people's livelihoods are destroyed um, or they're kicked off of, you know, there's a really great example of Virginia Tech. um, I think as a female soccer player, she didn't want to take a knee for the national anthem, but she was on a scholarship for her soccer playing and she was peer pressured um, significantly to be essentially like step off the team because she didn't want to take a knee. And so even though the school itself didn't kick her off, the just like her peers the coaches and you know everyone else around her was basically saying you don't belong here to the point where she ended up losing the scholarship and so you start to you know you start to wonder like when when are we going to actually get to that point because it does seem to be getting progressively worse um you know there's there's and you know there are other countries where it has you know that are supposedly western you know ideal countries and that you've seen examples of them. Um, I think Jordan Peterson is an example up in Canada. It wasn't like a little while ago, he didn't want to use um, pronouns, um, which would have been a compelled form of speech. Um, and they actually arrested, he went to jail for it. So that is right up to the line of what we see in communist and totalitarian regimes is going, you're being imprisoned at that point, just like you mentioned. Um, yeah, and I, I, one thing I do try to often emphasize to students is we're, we're one of the only countries, even in Western society, that has no exceptions written in our constitution to free speech. Again, to like reemphasize, every other country has some exception one way or another written into their constitutions when they talk about free speech. And that's something that's so unique about American culture. Um, and again, like our stance against these type of totalitarian regimes. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Feel free to respond. I was just going to think, I think that's, that's a great point. And, you know, I, I still have a lot of friends who live in Eastern Europe who, who grew up or who lived during the, 
the communist era. And uh, I got an email from a friend, uh, you know, probably a couple months back from, he lived in Eastern Europe, lives in Eastern Europe, grew up under the Soviet regime. Um, and he, he said, I, I, I'm looking at the news in your country and, and it terrifies me. He goes, <laughs> you people are our last, the world's last hope. And if you allow this to take root, like we did in our countries, then, then our hope is gone. And that's from somebody who endured that, that, that worries him that much where he would, you know, at two 30 in the morning, his time, I guess, was watching some stuff and sent me that note. So just, uh, it's just something we really need to be very cognizant of. And I think it's just, you know, we, we got to get to the point now where we don't need to have the tactics of, of people who are, you know, trying to compel speech or canceling you, but we should definitely take a stand against anytime we see it happening. Cause it's, you know, it's just, you know, it's something that George Orwell said is that there's like this, this double speak or double, a double yeah. speak where you, you, you really don't believe any of the garbage that you're saying, but you feel compelled to use it. So we got to get out of that mode of, feeling compelled to use it and just because this is where it leads. I mean, you know, my my role is in this program is I'm looking at this, we're writing a new curriculum. So I'm getting a, you know, a refresher course and all the stuff that I that I studied, you know, when I was in college and grad school and the like, but it's it's not good. It's not a good situation. And we need to we need to quash it while we can before we lose freedoms, because that's eventually where this goes is you're we're losing slowly um, our freedom of speech. Yeah. you know, from really from kind of from the bottom up, and I think social media is a big, big culprit in this where it's this mob, probably small, small group of people who are just, you know, blasting stuff out for anything they don't agree with. You know, they would never they would never do that face to face because they're mm-hmm. you know, probably get you know crushed, but they feel safe doing it and creating a mob on, on the internet to, to go after people. Yeah, I want to ask you a little bit about that, just talking about different tactics and stuff and, and how. Um and how this happens and how we restrict speech and censor one another. Um, how, with today's like modern technology, what is this battle with free expression and free speech um, with big tech companies? I mean, this is a topic that has come on, on come up on this podcast a number of times, um, but you know, just in general in the world of free speech, it's something like you mentioned with social media, um, TikTok and all of these apps that are out there with younger generations being very specific as to who they choose based on their value systems and what pressure that puts on tech companies to um, kind of, you know, espouse these certain, whether it be like progressive woke ideas um, that still shut down free speech. Like, how does this all work? What, what are your thoughts on all of that? Well, I, I think it's just, I think they're reacting to I think a lot of the things they're seeing, and I think they're reacting in the wrong way. I think what mm-hmm. they're doing is they're they're saying, "Well, I'm going to limit the speech that I don't agree with, or that you know, I'm just calling it what it is in a lot of cases a small mob of people who who just you know are, are scream the loudest and make the most noise, and they're they're playing to that. And I think also there's a there's a political component too. I think you know they typically lean more to the left, and I think they're they support those causes that, that go that way and. And they're they're seem like they're pretty quick on the trigger to to quash a lot of speech that they don't agree with, but not so much to some of the things that you hear from the from the more the left leaning side of the political spectrums. So I think that's dangerous, and I, I think it's just and again it's not even so much what people say. I think it's just where their their political leanings lie and how they're how they identify themselves is what makes them a target. And there's there's one quote I wanted to share with you on that on that topic about you know we, we really don't even look for what people that have done anything wrong. We just don't agree with what they've said. So like you said earlier, 
So this great quote from this guy from one of the security organs of the Soviet Union, uh, the, the Czech at the time, back in 1918, a guy named Martin Lassus. And he had this quote about how to deal with people. So let me, let me read what he, yeah. quote, what he said about it. He said, we are not fighting against single individuals. We are exterminating the bourgeois as a class. So this is his key point. Do not look in materials you have gathered for evidence that a suspect acted or spoke against the Soviet authorities. First question you should ask him is what class does he belong to? What's his origin, his education, his profession? These questions alone should determine his fate. Wow. Yeah. So that, and that is exactly kind of like what we do when we're thinking how we categorize one another these days through this identity politics conversation type of, type of usage and how we, Right. We look at each other through race, religion, creed, like that's really the identi identifying factor rather than, you know, what they think or what they want to say. Right. I mean, it's just that. I mean, it's just it's it's who you are. You know, if mm -hmm. you're not singing the party line, so to speak, and if you're not, you know, supporting the Soviets, the, the communist ideology going forward in that era, you were you were a target. I mean, right. they set out to eliminate a class of people. And when, what really worries me today when I see, you know, organizations or groups who define people by the group and because you belong to that group, you're an oppressor or you're mm -hmm. the oppressed, that, that harkens back to the same thing this guy was talking about. And we, we know where that went. Millions of people dead and, you know, a society that is just, they become so cowed and so terrified of being the next victim that they... They do exactly what the violence was intended to do, you know, stop them from saying what they what they thought. Now, the violence that we're experiencing today is more job related or socially related. So you lose you're going to lose a job. You could kind of a worst case. You could definitely going to lose friends over it. You're going to be kind of ostracized, kicked off social media platforms if if they don't agree with how you how you talk about things. So that's right. your political political leanings. Yeah, and I think it's important what you said. It's it's an elimination of an entire class, right? So even if it's not you know active genocide for now or anything like that right now, um, what was happening during these times was in effect genocide. They were going after a very specific group of people. Now, obviously, it wasn't based on like their genetic predisposition or their race or ethnicity. Sometimes it was, um, yeah. but. Other times it was like they were still targeting a, a very specific group of people and they were eliminating them from society. And so, like you're saying today, it's not incredibly violent yet. We're not there yet, but there's still an active attempt to eliminate voices from society and to make sure certain ones are not heard over others. Right, exactly. And, and that's what they were. They were they were excellent at doing that. They would re remove that person from the environment, you know, either by execution in the worst case or send them into the, in the prison system, the gulag system, you know, where, I mean, it, it, the worst of it during the, during the Stalin era, one in every 20 people in the Soviet Union was arrested, one of 20. And, you know, one point, almost 2 million people were sent to the gulag system, you know, during Stalin's, some of the worst period of his time where they worked to death, starved, or, or even executed there. And again, just separating those people, anybody who could be a threat to the society, their society, the communist society, was fair game. Yeah. Um, another tactic that I think is really important to talk about. So we've talked about um, how language is used against us, how, how they want to change language um, with, with technology, using modern technology to tamp down on free speech and expression. Um, but there's also, well, there's two more I want to talk on. The first one is the censorship of art and um, culture. 
And mm -hmm. so when we're looking at, you know, things that we're supposed to aspire to, which is art is supposed to create that like inspiration in us. It creates that cultural, that intellectual, intellectual curiosity in us. Um, and it, it makes us really want to go honestly towards more the, the divine, which is where our, a lot of art is around. Um, cool. And so what is this battle against art and culture that communist regimes had historically? Um, and why was that there? But then what are we seeing today? And like, kind of how does that square up? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, I think if you look back in history, I mean, it's it was amazing how in, into the weeds the communist parties got into the arts, the literature, et cetera, and, and film. I mean, mm -hmm. so Lenin, um, in a famous letter to Maxim Gorky, one of the most famous authors of, of his time, called this guy and said, basically his the paraphrase was that, I'm, I'm really worried about you because you're talking about these, this group of people that's against the communist regime. And I'm really concerned for your safety. Mm -hmm. So you think about that. You got the guy in charge of the country who's clearly demonstrated a willingness to kill about anybody to stay in power, sends you a personal letter telling you to tamp it down, bud, or something, something bad's gonna happen. And wow. Stalin, you know, same thing. He would he would be called, he would call directors, playwrights, authors, and make sure that either he was portrayed in a very good light or mm -hmm. the Communist Party writ large was, you know, dictating. What was what was permissible and what was not i think a lot of it today is you know we i think a lot of artists self-censor they don't i think a lot of them don't say what they they want to they, what they believe in some cases i think the ones who do you know, you've heard a lot of actors talking you know you know talking or complaining about well i'm a conservative so i'm getting i'm not getting any job officer officer anymore or i'm not going to make this film because it could you know could cause some you know some issue uh, I just read an article, I forgot the, the guy's name, but it was about this guy who played in the band Mumford and Son. And oh, yeah. Just, mm -hmm. yeah, he, he had to leave the band because he didn't feel he agreed with some of the things that was going on with the work he was trying to do and the things he wanted to say. So I think, I think it's sad. I mean, it really is. You know, the arts, again, it should be a place you can escape from, mm -hmm. you know, all the politics that we hear all the time, but it's in, it's in the arts, it's in sports where you, you know, I love watching football, but every time I turn it on, there's, there's something, there's some slogan, somebody's doing right. something. I mean, again, free speech, you're welcome to it. But I mean, political, I mean, why do we have to do that during a football game? Right. Well, I just want to watch the game. Or if I want to go to a concert, I don't want to hear politically correct, you know, a, a songs or whatever, or something that somebody, you know, either the, the academy itself now, yeah. or whoever is telling me that this is good enough. This is what you should hear. You don't need to hear anything that, you know, we don't agree with. And we yeah. limit the artists who go that way. And I think the goal then is to essentially just brainwash us into a certain type of culture. Like the more you hear it, the more you're exposed to these ideas, the more likely you're just going to like follow suit and, you know, think that this is normal. They're normalizing every, every like progressive idea or woke idea that they have specifically to get everyone to fall in line and say, this is the new normal now. You can't escape it. Um, and this is the culture that you're going to embrace. You can't escape that either. So like tearing down statues, you know, changing history, all of this is like kind of goes back into the cultural, um, the cultural push that they're trying to create. Yeah. And don't forget, you know, again, all, all the stuff that we're talking about has been done before. Maybe the technology was exactly. Yeah. So, you know, Stalin was famous for photoshopping guys out of favor, out of pictures that, you know, he was in with them. You know, he, you know there's several famous pictures just like that, where he, this guy was out of favor or he, or he executed them or he hmm. is rewriting history to make this guy, you know, a, a terrible person, human being, because he ran afoul of, of Stalin's paranoia. 
And, you know, we, you know, we seem to be, you know, allowing ourselves that's sub, same type of thing to happen to us. You know, we're not really, you know, fighting for our side of what we believe is correct. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you mentioned the playwrights and the musicians um, in those times. Um, but there's also, you know, all of, like we mentioned, like the religious art that was all taken down, it was all removed. Anything having to do with the czars or royalty, everything was removed. Um, you couldn't find it anywhere. Um, and so like, I think, yeah, and you, you mentioned how like they tried to influence place because they didn't want the art to go away because that would be too obvious. It had to be subtle that the art still existed in its own way, but it was, it was censored and it was changed and, and altered um, in the liking of kind of whoever was in charge. Right. And I think you make a good point too about the religious aspect of it. So they're, they're, they, they take control of, of the religious aspect of society. They, they want to eliminate it, number one. If you look at what Lenin did when he took over and the Bolsheviks came, in, came into power, they literally just you know, robbed and pillaged the Russian Orthodox Church across the country, mainly to finance her government. That was what most mm -hmm. people don't understand. They stole, I forgot what the numbers are, Sean McMeekin in his book, uh, The Russian Revolution, you know, really lays it out really well. But he talks about just the hundreds and hundreds of pounds of gold they stole out of the churches, you know, silver, tons of silver and the like. And then when the when the priests and the bishops of the country started resisting it, they killed them. You know, about 1,200 priests were murdered, um, 20,000 parishioners who tried to stand up against this this theft and taking of, of those religious artifacts was, you know, they were they were murdered. And, you know, it's just that if if there's a religious aspect to society, then that's something that people can escape to right. and think about something besides the party who is really, that's the, that's the religion. Mm -hmm. you know, communism is, you know, it's got an answer for every problem. And the answer typically is something to do with the state or something to do with a the party. They'll fix it. Or if they can't fix it, they'll tell you it's fixed and lie to you and say, it's, it's okay. You know, you must be a defeatist. What's wrong with you? <laughs> That is a fantastic point to hammer home, though, is that the Communist Party, the, the level of power that they sought was to replace God in the household, was to, was to be the religion of the state. And that was kind of what people, that, because if there is a power beyond you, then all of a sudden everything else in the party breaks down because you're supposed to, like you said, have the answers for everything as the state. That's the only way you can get people to kind of sign up for it. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah, so what their kind of philosophy was, you know, for, you know, when the, the religious people, Christians, they believe in, for example, that, you know, you, you live a life, you, you have God to focus on. And it, when you die, you go to, you go to paradise, go to eternity. Mm -hmm. What the communists promised everybody was paradise on earth without God. Right. That's what, that's what their promise was. And they, they never delivered what they mm -hmm. delivered was, was death, you know, misery, repression, you know, just in, in poverty everywhere, everywhere it's been tried. Yeah. And one of the other tactics I want to um, touch on before we wrap up is something that you're working on directly, which is the attempts to target the youth, right? Like how, how significant are younger generations to these, or how, how key are they to totalitarian regimes and to their success? Um, why do we see right now in society, a targeting of K through 12 and higher education, just going after the institutions of education. Um, what's, what's the objective behind this? Well, I, th I think when you, when you grab somebody at a younger age and you can, you can train them um, to think a certain way when it's, they're receiving a certain message, 
And as they get older, it's kind of locked in, right? They already, they're already to the point where, you know, they, they believe the lie. So this, there's another good quote. So this, the, the ideal subject for totalitarian rule is, is not so much the convinced communist, right? But it's the people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, i.e., you know, reality and experience, and the distinction between true and false no longer exist. Mm-hmm. So if you can fill them full of these ideas where they believe the lie, two plus two is five. Yeah. You know, then, then later on, as things, you know, progressively more important ideas come in, come into the main, then it's easy to convince them to, to follow along. And, and I think, I think mm-hmm. any parent would know too that kids believe anything. I mean, I'm not a parent. I have I have had younger siblings though, and like when they were they'll believe anything you tell them. And so it's easy to kind of build that imagination right. towards reality. And it's driving it's driving a wedge between you know parents and and yeah, uh, that's an excellent and, point. And their students. I think you know yeah. one of the of all the things that we see happening in the schools. I think the one I mean of all the COVID mess that we've had, <laughs> probably the only benefit that we got out of that whole mess has been the fact that parents were home. And they actually saw what some of their students were being taught. And it's yeah. scary for the right reasons. You know, when you're, you're hearing some of the things that some of the, I'll just call it what it is, it's garbage. It's, it's, it's either no history or incredibly slanted, or it's a simple ideology. They're just trying to pump mm-hmm. this stuff into, into a kid's head to make them think the way the teacher thinks. And yeah. that's, that's not right. They should be teaching them, you know, giving them an education, a proper education, like where they can read, they can write, critically think about things you know, don't give them an answer you want them to spout, you know, let them think about things and, you know, develop their own thoughts and ideas about it. I think yeah. ideas for those people become dangerous. Definitely. And I, I think um, you made an excellent point in that parents are finally starting to kind of open their eyes to it. Uh, I think we, especially 80s and 90s uh, and early 2000s, we were becoming very dependent on the public education system just because it started, you know, it started with your traditional subjects as English, math, science, um, and literature. Um, but then all of a sudden now it's like they're adding sexual education, you know, throughout the decades over they're adding, um, you know, different, like let's teach your kids about drugs that basically to the point where we're going to teach your kids all the things they should probably be learning at home. And the parents should probably be teaching them, but we'll just take that on. Um, because we know you guys are busy and you're all working and then, you know, you don't need to handle that. So it's just kind of came up over the decades, but now you're starting, now we're starting to see the insidious nature of all of that and kind of like what the ultimate goals were was to manipulate the youth and to use them um, against against society. Right. I think that's that's an ex- excellent point. I think it's again, you know, I, I'm talking now with a you know a lot of parents who are going to these school board meetings. They're they're having these you know pretty frank discussions with the school board about what they're seeing, you know, when the kids' homework. I think it's really just brought the parents more back or back to a much greater extent than they have been for many, many years back into the education of their children. And it's very important to, to do that and be aware because a lot of what, I mean, a lot of teachers out there are really good and they're, they're working hard. They're, they're trying to make a difference in a kid's life. And, and I think that's, that's admirable, but you know, some aren't, I mean, it's just like anything else in society. There's, there's going to be some that are, are bad apples and you've really got to watch it. And because your kids are, that's, that's a precious resource. And if you get them focused the wrong direction right, right away, it's going to be very, very difficult to get them back. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of want to end on some of the stuff you saw, because I know you were, you know, in the military, you, um, you got to see a lot on the ground as it was happening, like the fight for freedom um, and what was going on there. So I'm kind of curious, what was the fight for freedom like under these types of regimes? Well, I mean, it's a, 
it just, I tell you, I, I really admire these people. I mean, to such a degree. Now, I tell people in the army, you know, it's when you, you know, I've been to combat, had people shoot at me, try to kill me. And it's, it's, a, it's a terrible experience. I mean, I, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But, you know, I had the ability to shoot back. Yeah, I could I could dictate the terms of the fight if I prepared myself. These people, especially you think about Eastern Europeans in the, in the Soviet area era and the Chinese folks today, they don't have that luxury. They don't get to shoot back. They're out there unarmed against the police state who has demonstrated the willingness to to kill people to stay in power. So it's uh, it's it's a horrific fight. You got a lot of friends. And, and, you know, my background, I'll tell you up front is is Soviet era, Russia and that part of the world, Eastern Europe. That's mm -hmm. where. You know, spent all my time working. Don't know as much about you know China. I'm trying to get smarter on it because it's a it's a huge threat. But you know, these people, you know, endure a lot to yeah. to, to win their freedom. And some people pay their lives for it. I mean, there's a great one that my first assignment in Germany. There's a place uh, near one of the border outposts that we manned on the on the West German side, and it's a uh, it's a road up this mountain. And up this mountain, there's there's 14 crosses, and in each one of those crosses, on in, this is in West Germany at the time, is where a, a group of about three families were were murdered by the East Germans. Who, when the West Germans broke across the fence, the fence, they followed them and killed every one of them in in West Germany. So they risked their lives trying to seek a better life in in the West. So that's the level of commitment they had. And I think what is very sad is our students today in you know, middle school, high school, they get none of that. They don't, they don't understand that, you know, this idea of socialism or idea of communism is gaining a little bit of traction and a little, you know, you know a complete neglect of teaching history in, in a lot of cases has left people open to the idea and romanticize these, these isms, which, yeah. which is very dangerous because there was, there was nothing good if it's so bad that you know you got to come across a border fence and, and murder fourteen people, to to what? Right. What, what was the end there? Just other than just violence for violence' sake. Right. Yeah. No. I think that's something that is definitely taken for granted, um, as you mentioned. Uh, just how serious the whole situation was, because again, we do talk about it um, as if it's very. As I mentioned in my opening, it was just kind of. We remember it, you know. We remember, like we we have memorials and kind of days where we dedicate to the to these experiences under communist regimes, um, you know, fighting for freedom. But we don't actually think to ourselves, like, wait, what actually was going down in these? You know, what this is what the school system should be teaching is kind of remembering kind of what specifically was happening and how hard it was to get to where we are today in a free society because that's not something that comes easily. We've mentioned that a lot of times when societies drift towards socialism, communism, or other types of totalitarian leadership, they drift that way because of complacency. A bunch of, you know, when you have citizens who are either genuinely disinterested um, and, and, you know, preoccupied with other things going on in their life and there's no real drive there where they forget kind of where they came from and what we have that special, or there's just like those folks who you mentioned before, self-censor who are okay with wrong, you know, this concept of wrong think or double speak where they're just going, they don't, you know, it's, it's easier to keep your head down or to just right. spout, spout the, you know, what the social justice warriors wants you to say just to avoid any confrontation. Um, but mediocrity, I mean, that's not, if you're not choosing a side, you know, then, then you're relinquishing the other side that you're not choosing. So it's like, if you're, if you're not choosing freedom, then you're relinquishing to the other side, which is going to try to destroy freedom. So 
I think these are really, really important lessons um, for students and some of the work that you're doing is just really, really awesome and admirable because of what you guys are working on trying to educate uh, the, the younger students to just understand this history in a much more serious manner and not just be like, oh, you know, it's just Stalin, you know, it's <laughs> something that's used as a term to, to describe mass murder, <laughs> but uh, something more serious than that. Um, so, so from you, any final thoughts on, on how to um, remind people um, that their freedom should be more valued and not taken for granted? Yeah, I just think it's, um, I would suggest that people, you know, go on our website. We have this thing called the Witness Project. It's a series of videos for people who, who actually lived under these communist regimes and were able to escape. And for anybody who has the notion that this is you know, this was a, is a cool system or you, you're sporting your Che Guevara t-shirt because you think he's cool and not realizing he's a mass murderer. Right. You know, I would say, you know, go, go listen to these people, go to our website. There's a lot of facts and information, educational material to get smart on what this thing called communism is really all about and the cost. So remember uh, over a hundred million people dead to in place in, to either yeah. secure or maintain a communist government, 100 million, 1.5 billion still living under communist rule in, in the five remaining nations, China, Vietnam, et cetera. It's just, it's a horrible system and people are suffering still today yeah. through this system. So go to our website. There's uh, you know, obviously, you know, we're a nonprofit, so we appreciate you see that little red donate button, <laughs> you know, any, anything you'd like to give to help us out to, you know, kind of work on our educational programs to, to spread the word about this. And also, we have a speakers bureau. So if, if you're you know, in university level, high school, middle school, or you're a teacher or your parent, you want somebody, one of our experts to come talk to you, one of our witnesses to come talk to your school or your university, yeah. you know, we are always willing to come do that. So please uh, reach out and let us know. That's a great feature, getting the witnesses or some of your experts to talk to these groups and these like kind of, especially in elementary school or middle school, where it's really going to resonate with students and, and kind of at that younger age, just kind of opening their eyes at an earlier time for that and high school as well, actually, too. Yeah. yeah. And we got um, some very powerful speakers who can just really just, you know, really yeah. tell you that the, the true story about how wonderful this system called communism really was. Right. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, so this is well said. Uh, I interview policy experts, commentators, academics, students, and activists on topics in higher education, free speech, and other related topics in American culture and policy. You can share this episode on your Facebook or YouTube page, um, as well as our podcast uh, so on either Apple, Spotify, Anchor. We have all the all the podcast apps. So download that and listen anytime. Give us a five-star rating if you like what you heard today. I'm Sharice Trump and Kent, that was well said. Thank you.